coming to you from the Motor City. From the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, this is Detroit's Daily Docket. On today's episode, we'll pull back the curtains and introduce you to the forensic pathologists behind the proverbial scalpels. Hear about the journeys they took that led them here. Learn the history of the office and the differences between coroners, medical examiners, and forensic pathologists. This and more coming up next. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Lachman Sung, and I'll be your host for this very first episode of Detroit's Daily Docket. We are joined in studio today by our Deputy Chief Medical Examiner and originator of this podcast, Dr. Lee Lavity, and Assistant Medical Examiners, Dr. Omar Reyes and Dr. Milad Webb. There's so much to cover that it's hard to know where to start. I'll begin by introducing you to our building. We are located at 1300 East Warren Avenue in Midtown Detroit. And when you look at the surrounding buildings, it's a little funny because we're sandwiched right in between God and money. What I mean is to our immediate west is the Warren Avenue Missionary Baptist Church. And to our east is the Detroit branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. In thinking about the content of this podcast, when the four of us sat down to brainstorm ideas, there were so many stories and tales of the office. In fact, the building that we are sitting in today wasn't the first medical examiner's office. Dr. Lavity, can you tell us a little bit about the history and how this office came to be? Certainly. In order to introduce who we are, we need to say a few words about the history of the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, as it holds a special place in our hearts as well as in the field of forensics. In the early 1900s, the dead were housed in the basement of City Hall, where they quickly outpaced the available space. In 1926, the Wayne County Morgue opened in Detroit on the southeast corner of Brush and Lafayette. It housed both the Wayne County Coroner's Court and the mortuary, with the first floor containing the mortuary, which could hold up to almost 200 bodies, and the second floor containing the courtrooms. In 1927, an astounding 3,000 bodies were processed through this morgue. It was clearly a different age, where tuberculosis was the most common cause of death, homicides comprised only 115 cases, and transportation deaths included railroads and streetcars in addition to automobiles. Jumping to 1972, Dr. Werner Spitz became the chief medical examiner and the office became the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. Dr. Spitz is considered one of the founding fathers of forensic pathology as a subspecialty or discipline of medicine as it is practiced today. Let me take a couple minutes to expand on the concept of medical specialties, subspecialties, and how pathology fits into that. For me, an easy way to think about it is to imagine a tree. You have a large central trunk, and that trunk represents all that we know about the human body. From the main trunk, you're going to sprout off large limbs. Those limbs are the specialties, such as surgery, internal medicine, radiology, and pathology. The pathology limb further branches into clinical pathology and anatomic pathology. There's definitely overlap between the two, but a clinical pathologist more so works in the laboratory environment, where they use the analytical sciences like chemistry, microbiology, and toxicology. They make diagnoses, on various fluids, 
such as blood, urine, and sputum. On the other hand, an anatomic pathologist deals with the structures of the body, like the heart, lungs, and liver. They take small pieces of those organs or biopsies and look at them underneath the microscope to diagnose diseases such as cancers, inflammation, and infections. If we go back to the tree analogy, the anatomic pathology branch further separates into smaller limbs. Those are the subspecialties of which forensic pathology is one of those. The forensic pathologist has the general anatomic pathology training, but also specializes in injuries. And the ultimate goal is to determine the cause and manner of a person's death. Now, with all that being said, getting back to Dr. Spitz, Dr. Lavity, you were describing how he was one of the founding fathers of forensic pathology. Tell us more about his contributions. He is one of the editors of the book considered to be one of the Bibles of forensic medicine, meaning it is one of two to three textbooks widely accepted as a learned treatise on forensic pathology. I'm sorry to cut in again, but you just mentioned the term learned treatise. Just to give a working definition, a learned treatise enters into the legal realm, where it's a text or a book or a journal that is considered to comprehensively cover a field of study, and it's generally accepted to be authoritative in that field. These documents can be admissible in court and can be used as evidence to support an idea. Is that where Dr. Spitz's book fits in? The book is Spitz and Fisher's Medical Legal Investigation of Death, first published in 1973 and now in its fourth edition. This book has a special meaning for us, as we currently serve the same population that formed the foundation for Dr. Spitz's observations and conclusions in the book. The pictures used in this book are part of our library, and his observations are part of our lexicon. We also have the privilege of examining his conclusions decades later to see if they still hold weight given current knowledge and technologies, and in the same population as he studied, which eliminates a lot of variables for consideration. Dr. Spitz resigned in 1988 after 16 years. Dr. Bader Kassin became chief medical examiner, and he oversaw the planning and construction of a new state-of-the-art facility in Detroit on Warren Avenue, which is where we are still located. Dr. Kassin remained chief ME until 1994, when Dr. Sawait Ken Lewin then assumed the position until his retirement in 2003. Dr. Carl Schmidt then became, and still is, the chief medical examiner and he has currently held the position the longest of any doctors. Thank you, Dr. Laverty. The old building on Lafayette Boulevard was demolished back in 1995, and I never had an opportunity to visit or train there. But from the stories that you've told me, it sounded like it was a bit of a creepy place. And perhaps we'll come back to that on a future episode, but for now, this building on Warren Avenue, as I walk through it, it feels pretty modern to me. There are many large floor-to-ceiling windows and skylights that let in the natural sunlight. The autopsy room is also fairly large with a total of seven autopsy stations. That being said, this office has also undergone some significant changes, particularly around the Great Recession. Can you tell us more about that? In 2012, the office underwent a fundamental change in its operational structure. At that time, Michigan was and in many respects still is, recovering from hard financial times. 
In the face of serious county budget and staff cuts, Wayne County entered into a partnership with the University of Michigan to provide forensic services, wherein the staff and resources are supplied by the university and the building is maintained by the county. This partnership with the University of Michigan has allowed the office to restaff departments, become accredited by the National Association of Medical Examiners, and engage in educational and scholarly efforts that speak to our experience and history. Currently, our office receives about 17,000 death calls a year, meaning that 17,000 deaths fit the criteria laid out in the law, specifically the State of Michigan Medical Examiner Statute. Of these calls, about 3,200 cases are brought in for examination. Roughly one-third of these are people who passed in a hospital, and the remaining two-thirds of these are deaths outside of a medical facility. Times are clearly different from 1927, as heart disease, known to you as coronary artery disease or a heart attack, and to us as arterial sclerotic cardiovascular disease, is now the most common cause of death, and the homicides average about 325 cases a year. Now that you have a flavor for how this office came to be, let's transition into forensic pathology specifically. A subject that is particularly confusing is what the differences between coroners, medical examiners, and forensic pathologists is. I think a part of that is because it's propagated in the common media, television, and movies where these terms are used synonymously when they actually aren't. I'm going to turn the mics over to Drs. Reyes and Webb to help clarify this. Gentlemen? Thank you. Dr. Reyes, how are you today? Good. How are you, Dr. Webb? Great. Uh, Death investigation in the United States has its origins rooted in the English common law and the English coroner system and was brought to the United States during the colonial period. Uh, There are two distinct death investigation systems within the United States. And based on our consumption of popular media and movies like Dr. Sung was alluding to, it's very difficult for us to tell the difference. And so it's common for us to hear the words coroner or medical examiner used interchangeably. But like Dr. Sung was saying, there are considerable differences between these terms. The coroner dates back to the early 1200s and the Articles of Ire during the reign of uh, Richard the Lionheart. However, the coroners at that time were considerably different than the ones that we're used to today. Uh, They consisted of three knights and a clerk, and they attended death scenes and ensured suspicious deaths were being properly investigated. However, duties included holding inquests, assessments for tax purposes, obtaining arrest warrants, confiscating property, and enforcing laws. In the United States, it wasn't until the 1860s in Maryland Uh, that there was a law passed to require the presence of a physician at an inquest. Now, you might be asking, like, what is an inquest? And um, an inquest is a formal investigation or a hearing um, where a jury will hear the facts of a case and make a decision on the cause and the manner uh, in a case. Uh, Because I don't practice in a coroner jurisdiction, I can't really say how often this occurs. Uh, It is, to my understanding, relatively rare. In uh, the 1860s, actually 1868, a physician was elected as the coroner of Baltimore. And if you take notice, I said that he was elected. Uh, And that is a key distinction between coroners and medical examiners, which Dr. Reyes will mention. It was in 1890s that physicians 
who were conducting autopsies in, uh, for the Baltimore coroner were referred to as medical examiners. It was not until uh, 1918 that we got the first true medical examiner system in New York City. And since that time, the idea has really spread to much of the country. And although there are many states today that still retain their coroner systems, many have adopted the medical examiner system where there is a physician that is the head of the death investigation system and not a coroner. It's important to point out, though, that many states are actually mixed and have both coroners and medical examiner systems where larger population areas, for example, big cities are covered by medical examiners and smaller counties and rural areas are under the jurisdiction of coroners. Let me talk about the differences between coroners and medical examiners. A coroner is an elected official who makes rulings as to the cause and manner of death in cases that fall under the coroner's jurisdiction. Coroners are usually elected for a term, typically four years. Most states let them serve innumerable terms. Only Colorado, Indiana, and Idaho have term limits. Their responsibilities include being the head of the death investigation system, deciding which cases need autopsies, and then consulting a pathologist or autopsy physician to perform the examination. Coroners do not perform autopsies and typically are not individuals that have any medical educations outside the training that they received for their coroner duties. So, Dr. Reyes, uh, can a physician be elected as a coroner? Yes. In some areas of the country, the coroner system has been modified such that the coroner has to become a physician. However, most doctors have little experience in certifying the cause and manner of death. So in the forensic community, there's a lot of discussion about the coroner sheriffs of California. Yes, the coroner sheriff is an interesting modification of the coroner system. In numbers of counties in California, the coroner is also a sheriff. So if death happens in the custody of the sheriff, the investigation of this death will be done by the sheriff themselves. So obviously there is a potential for conflict of interest in these cases. In the medical examiner system, this conflict of interest uh, doesn't exist because the medical examiner functions uh, in complete autonomy from law enforcement and the legal system. That's right. A medical examiner is a physician who's uh, experienced in the field of pathology and performs autopsies on selected cases to determine the cause and manner of death. A medical examiner system typically consists of the chief medical examiner, who should be a board-certified forensic pathologist with a number of years of experience. Under the chief, uh, there should be assistant medical examiners uh, like Dr. Webb and I, who are also board-certified forensic pathologists. In reality, forensic pathologists and medical examiners aren't necessarily the same thing. And even though we use the term interchangeably, a forensic pathologist is a physician who has studied pathology with fellowship training in forensics especially. A medical examiner could actually be a physician that is not a pathologist and a physician that 
may serve the community in a primary care th- setting, for example, a, a pediatrician or a family doctor. And depending on the area that you are in and the availability of medical resources, that is why some autopsy physicians are not trained in forensic pathology. So forensic pathology is the uh, branch of medicine uh, which uh, determines the cause and manner of death. There is a confusion in regards to whom fills the cause and manner of death on death certificates. In some jurisdiction where the forensic pathologist performs the autopsy, the coroner certifies the manner of death after the forensic pathologist assigns a cause of death. There are five manners of death in the United States. Natural, when death happens due to a natural disease, for example, a heart attack. Accident, when death happens due to a physical injury, for example, a motor vehicle crash. Toxic events like drug overdose or environmental conditions, uh, such as death by fire and electrocutions. Suicide is when death happens due to someone's own actions. Homicide is when death happens due to the actions of someone else. Indeterminate is uh, given when there is not enough information to support classifying death in any of the previous manners. These are the five basic manners of death. However, in some states, there is a sixth manner of death called therapeutic complication. And these are accidental deaths which occur due to medical intervention. For those of you that are thinking about becoming a forensic pathologist, absolutely, I highly encourage it. But I'm not going to lie to you. The journey is pretty long. The very first step is that you have to finish high school. After high school, you need to go to college and get a bachelor's degree. Now, that degree doesn't have to be in the sciences. I know that's something that people always think, that I'm no good in science, so how can I become a doctor? That's not true. You can major in practically anything. I've known people that were art majors, dance majors, people in government who went on to become very successful physicians. After college comes medical school, and traditionally medical school is four years. After you graduated from medical school, you need to go through a pathology residency. There's anatomic pathology, clinical pathology, anatomic and clinical pathology, and other types. But for a forensic pathologist, you have to have at the bare minimum, the anatomic pathology training. And after residency, you have to complete a one-year fellowship specifically in forensic pathology. I know that sounds like a lot, and it is. If you total up all the years of education after high school, depending on the type of residency that you choose, it'll be at least 12 to 13 years. I know it's not a decision that you can make very lightly, but it can be a very rewarding one. All of the doctors here took different paths to becoming forensic pathologists. And we thought that by sharing our journeys with you, you'll get to know us a little better and it might inspire some of you to go into this field. We'll start with Dr. Lavity. I am the only doctor currently in this office that has spent my whole life in and around Detroit and took the straightest path from high school to becoming a medical examiner. I decided I wanted to be a doctor in kindergarten based not on what I thought about medicine as a career, but that it involved a lot of schooling, and at that age, I liked and excelled at school. When I got into college, I knew I had to take a lot of prerequisite courses in order to apply to medical school. 
I also knew that this was my one and only chance to study something other than science, so I made the decision to go to college year-round in order to take the prereqs while majoring in art history. For anyone considering a career in pathology, I strongly recommend taking art history courses, and not just the intro-level course, but a few upper-level art history courses. I recommend this for two reasons. The first reason is that art history is pictures, and these courses teach you the invaluable skill set of how to memorize a visual and break it down into its components. The art terms, like subject, composition, materials and methods, and context, are easily swapped for pathology terms, like tissue of origin, architecture, and nuclear and cytoplasmic features. And having this skill set allows you to hit the ground running at the start of your residency. The second reason is that higher-level art history courses involve writing a lot of papers, a skill that most science courses do not fully develop. There is an art to writing so that your target audience understands what it is you are saying. In forensics, you have to write autopsy reports for the general public and scientific papers for doctors and forensic personnel. And you don't want to struggle with this if you don't have to. So once I got into medical school, I considered what a career in medicine would entail truthfully for the first time in my life. And I knew that I worked best when I'm busy and do not have a routine, and I knew that I was looking for something outside of the box. At the start of the second year of med school, as part of the pathology course, Dr. Warner Spitz lectured my class on forensic pathology. This was the best attended lecture in medical school, as everyone wanted to see the pictures that were from his book. The overwhelming sentiment from my fellow classmates, though, was more along the lines of, why is forensics a subspecialty of medicine when any idiot could connect the dots in gunshot wounds? I immediately understood that in such cases, there are more important questions to be answered by autopsy, such as time of death, other injuries, drugs on board, than perhaps the wounds themselves, a fact that they all ignored or missed. But I was hooked. I then did an elective in forensic pathology at this office while in medical school to make sure I could emotionally and physically do the job, meaning that I could perform an autopsy. And I then set out to become not just a forensic pathologist, but one working in Detroit. And I researched and charted my path through my residency in anatomic pathology at the Detroit Medical Center and Wayne State University to my fellowship in forensic pathology here at this office. I was fortunate that there was an opening for an assistant medical examiner a position that I held until 2011 when I became the Deputy Chief Medical Examiner. My entire career has been here in Detroit, and I've performed over 8,000 autopsies and have testified over 400 times in my career thus far. My primary passion, other than the casework, is education. So as soon as I became a staff medical examiner at the office, I oversaw the medical student and residents that rotate through the office. I revamped both the elective rotation for medical students and the required rotation for pathology residents, and we currently have a very engaging and dynamic educational experience that includes autopsies, going to scenes, observing court testimony, lectures, and research opportunities. When we partnered with the University of Michigan in 2012 and became faculty, we were able to engage in research projects that spoke to both our interests and our experience. I'm currently Clinical Associate Professor of Pathology at the University of Michigan, and I have authored 19 publications with at least two more in the works thus far. In 2015, I was approached by Colin Miller, Professor of Law at the University of South Carolina School of Law and creator of the scholarly blog, Evidence Prof Blog, to review a case. That case was Hey Min Lee, 
an 18-year-old woman who was strangled in Maryland in 1999. I knew nothing about her death or the subsequent investigation, but agreed to look into the case and answer his questions. Colin then asked if I would be willing to record our Q&A for their podcast. That podcast was Undisclosed, which investigates wrongful convictions, and it turned out that my opinion on the time of death was a bombshell for the case. I subsequently worked with them for three seasons, The State versus Adnan Saeed, The State versus Joey Watkins, and The Killing of Freddie Gray. Working with the Undisclosed podcast was a positive experience for me as a forensic pathologist, and I began to realize that podcasts are a fantastic platform for educating a large audience. Why don't you go next, Dr. Webb? I was born in Tehran, Iran. Um, My parents at the time were very concerned that I was going to grow up in a a war-torn country. Um, At the time, Iran and Iraq were in uh, a pretty terrible war. Um, And the war essentially ran itself out of money. But before that, um, it kind of seemed like an endless war. Um, I was seven years old when we were surprised to get our green card application. We sold everything that we owned, and we left Iran with one suitcase. Uh, We had some family that lived in the U.S. Uh, They lived in San Ramon and San Rafael. So they took us in for the first couple months that we were here in the the U.S. Uh, My parents were both like high school educated, and they had more or less business class jobs like retail. My mother was like a secretary. Um, but they couldn't translate any of those skills because they couldn't speak English. So they couldn't find jobs in the areas. But just across the Sierra Nevadas, uh, there was big casino culture. So we moved to Reno, and my parents could get jobs doing pretty, you know, low-level, entry-level jobs so that they could do something, make some kind of a living while they learned the culture and learned the language. So I grew up in Reno, stayed in Reno all the way through high school. At the end of high school, I felt an itch. I can't even explain today, but I wanted to do something different. So I told my mother that I wanted to join the military. I was still a junior in high school. I wasn't even 18 years old. And if you're under the age of 18, you can't sign unless your parents go with you and they sign for you. I remember sitting in the recruiter's office and my mother crying. And the irony of the situation had just started to settle in for me. They made like so many sacrifices for us to leave Iran so I wouldn't have to be in the military in Iran and go to war. And I came to the U.S. and I decided to join the military. It was strange to have that conversation with them and tell them that, no, it's okay. It's not the same. Little did I know at that moment that I was going to be in Fort Benning, Georgia, on a rifle range on September 11th, 2001. And the world forever changed on that day. My parents were petrified. It was, uh, it was a very hard time for us at that, uh, at that moment. I didn't have much choice. I kind of plowed right through. I did very well in, uh, in basic training, and, and I went to advanced individual training to become an Army medic. And at the time, I knew that I wanted to perhaps go into medicine. I wasn't very convinced at the time, but I knew that I wanted to leave that door open. Um, It was a good experience. It was a great great time. So I came back. I joined 
the my Nevada Guard unit, um, which was uh, an outstanding unit. I, I keep in contact with uh, with a few of my friends from that time period. By the time my service time was over, I was happy that I did it, uh, but I was I was certainly not going to continue in the service. I didn't know if I was going to get deployed overseas. I didn't know what kind of danger I would be in. I don't know. I didn't know if I could ever pursue medicine. So I left the service at that time. And it just so happened that within two or three months after I left my unit, uh, they were deployed to Afghanistan. And I always felt guilt and regret that I didn't go with them because I was I was their medic. And when they actually needed me, I wasn't there. So if we go back to when I went to the university, I still wasn't sure about going into medicine or going into something else, but I enjoyed science. So I studied biochemistry. I did a minor in English, creative writing, because I really enjoyed writing at the time. And I'm glad I did. It has come in as a very useful skill uh, in my um, academic life. I finished my degree in biochemistry in 2007. I took my MCAT, I applied to medical school, and I got in. Went to the University of Nevada School of Medicine. It is a, a smaller school. Because of the small class sizes, I got one-on-one experience with a lot of clinicians um, that I feel like I wouldn't have had those opportunities at much larger institutions. I was into my third year, and I still didn't know what I wanted to do in medicine. I really did not connect. And I think that one influential mentor changes our perception of an entire career Um, if we come across that person at the right time. And it was at the beginning of my fourth year, my university was having uh, these lunch meetings where different clinicians from the community would come and they would talk about what they do. At the time, my only exposure to pathology was through lectures. Like most medical students, I found pathology lectures to be a little bit overwhelming. There's a lot of information that just spewed at you and it's kind of dry. And I had that moment that I had my very first mentor in pathology cross my path at a time when I was really searching for a career. She told me about what she did. She told me about cutting frozens and looking at tissue and diagnosing cancers. And it was a side of pathology that I had never been exposed to. I didn't know anything about. Now I saw there was this, there was this world of pathology that was so big. It was the first time in really a couple years. I was super excited. And the second I left that lunch, I called my wife and I told her that uh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a pathologist. And at the time, my wife uh, was in residency for anesthesia. And she was like, really? Are you sure? Uh, Like, you want to spend the rest of your life in a basement somewhere? And I told her, I'm like, no, you have no idea. Like, I didn't have any idea. But these people are really cool. These people are great people. My wife, she's uh, uh, academically, she's um, far more intelligent than I am. And she essentially got to pick what program she wanted to go to anywhere in the country. And she chose uh, Michigan's anesthesia program, which is, which is an elite program. And it just turned out that Michigan pathology is also uh, an elite program. So, you know, I was, I was very blessed that everything worked out in that sense. And I got to go to Michigan um, and, and pursue pathology. I was a year and a half in, and I decided that I wanted to pursue more of an academic career, and I wanted to pursue something 
at a larger institution where I could be more specialized. So I told my program director that I wanted to transition from uh, what we call APCP, anatomic and clinical pathology, to AP only. And I wanted to do neuropathology. Neuropathology was this uh, really great like niche field in pathology. It's very challenging. It takes a lot of practice. It takes a great eye. Unfortunately, uh, the neuropathology fellowship was essentially off track from my schedule. And so if I wanted to do it, I would have a year where I would have to fill in with something else. And then the following year I could do neuropathology. I spoke with my wife and I said, you know, I did enjoy forensics. So maybe I can put forensics in and that would give me flexibility to be able to do also neuropathology for forensic cases. I finished my anatomic pathology and I started my year in forensics. My year in forensics was broken in two different sites, um, in Ann Arbor at Washtenaw County uh, Medical Examiner's Office, and then at Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office, which is in Detroit. Within a couple of months, I knew that this is where I belonged. I felt uh, this energy about coming to work and doing the work and learning every day that I had never felt before. And I was so excited by it. What a blessing it is to find an occupation in which you are energized by and excited by. And every day you go to work and you look forward to growing in that profession and doing the best that you can do. And knowing that you're a part of this elite, really handful of people in this entire country that can do the work that you do. You are faced with some tragic events, some horrific events, and you are the professional that has to handle that and has to bring it all together. We are tasked with knowing everything that there is to know in terms of human disease and the, the condition of death, as well as know how to communicate that in the legal system, how to communicate that to law enforcement, and how to communicate that to family members. I don't know of any other profession in the medical spectrum of professions that has to be able to uh, have those three different skills mastered. I feel very lucky uh, every day that I get to come and do my job here at Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office. It's your turn, Dr. Reyes. I was born and raised in Damascus, Syria, where I grew up in a family of doctors who always valued and encouraged education and academic accomplishments. My dad was a pathologist and my mom was an, an internist. Growing up with doctors was a learning experience by itself. It was not uncommon for my parents to have medical discussions over family dinners, and it was interesting to me and my brothers to hear about it. We always looked up to my parents and wanted to become doctors like them. I observed my first autopsy when I was in the sixth grade. I watched my dad performing a fetal autopsy, and I became fascinated by anatomy and how organs develop. After finishing elementary school, I went to El Basel High School for outstanding students, which was the first high school established in Syria to provide education for superior students. There I was surrounded by many smart and talented students who pushed me further to excel in my studying. My hard work had finally paid off and I was accepted in Damascus University School of Medicine. When I was in medical school, my older brother, who was doing a pediatric residency in the U.S., helped me with applying for medical rotations at his hospital. I remember arriving on a snowy night to Syracuse, New York, and it was the heaviest snow that I've seen in my life. 
doing medical rotations there helped me a lot with understanding how the medical system works here. I wanted to follow my brother's steps and get a residency position, but I wasn't sure which specialty. After graduating from medical school, I certified my medical diploma and joined a research lab at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. During my time there, I helped with some lab bench work and basic research projects. There, I decided that pathology would be the best fit for me. I moved to Detroit, Michigan and joined the Henry Ford Hospital Pathology Residency Program. During my pathology residency training, I was drawn to cutting and grossing and after rotating through different subspecialties, I decided that a career in forensic pathology would be the perfect fit for me. After finishing a year of fellowship training in forensic pathology at the Medical College of Wisconsin, I moved back to Michigan and joined the Wayne County Medical Examiner's Office along with Dr. Webb. I love observing nature and part of my job is observing changes to organs and noticing any abnormalities. Sometimes you can spot architectural similarities between nature and the human body, which is always fascinating to me. I'm very excited about our podcast and looking forward to share great content with you. Thank you. Oh boy, my turn now. In a lot of ways, it's actually ironic that I'm sitting in front of a microphone wearing a pair of headphones and about to tell you my story because I'm an introvert and I would never be accused of oversharing. But here it goes. I want to start off with a classic question. What do you want to do when you grow up? I can say with certainty that I had no idea, no clue. I would have never thought that I'd be a forensic pathologist. In fact, to be honest, for much of my life, and that includes a good portion of my early adulthood, I didn't even know what a pathologist was, let alone a forensic pathologist. Through the years, I've given presentations and lectures and mentored students from all levels of education. And some of those students were incredibly driven. They seemed to have this laser focus on their career path. They knew all the steps that they were going to take and how to get there. And I can say that wasn't me. I can't really remember my very early childhood, but from what bits and pieces I do have, I spent much of my time just trying to fit in not at all thinking about the future and what I wanted to be. I know it's going to sound cliche and probably everyone for at least one time or another in their life suffered the same problem that they just wanted to be like everyone else. My struggle was in reconciling my cultural differences. I'm a first generation Chinese American from Hong Kong and I lived in a handful of cities and states throughout the U.S., literally from coast to coast, California to Delaware. I didn't mind moving around, but I did spend a lot of time in areas that there were very few Chinese people. Inside my own house, things were fine. But when connecting to the outside world, it wasn't always so easy. Look at it this way. From a child's and adolescent's perspective, not looking like everyone else and not being like your peers can be pretty difficult. I rebelled against my parents. They tried to teach me to read and write Chinese, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be American. I wanted to speak English. You know, why do we have to use chopsticks and not forks? And did you know that slurping noodles in public only gets you strange looks? And no, I don't know Kung Fu. Uh, all that being said, I did try to share some of my cultural things with my friends, but it never really worked out as planned. For example, some Chinese people love to crack and eat watermelon seeds. It's like peanuts to them. 
One day, I brought some seeds to school for my friends to try. I showed them how to do it, and I gave them some. One of my buddies popped one in his mouth and ended up impaling his own gums. They were bleeding, and he was crying, and all that attracted the attention of the recess attendant. And you can imagine how awkward it is as a little kid trying to explain to an adult that the seeds were just seeds and not some sort of contraband. Thankfully, as I moved into my oh-so-mature teenage years, the desire to be the same started to fade a bit. I attended a very small high school, and for some, I know that'd be torture, but for me, it allowed me to take a much more active role in my school and in my community. In the end, I did pretty well in high school, and I was all set to go into chemical engineering. But practically at the last minute, for some reason, I decided not to, and instead went to Elma College. Now, I don't expect too many of you to have heard of Alma College or even know where it is. It's a small liberal arts college in the middle of Michigan. And although I didn't know it at the time, it was one of the best decisions that I've ever made. Uh, The class sizes are small, and it allowed me to work pretty closely with my professors and branch out in my own direction. I do love the sciences, and like Dr. Webb, I also majored in biochemistry. As I went through college, my affinity to the field of medicine grew. And when it came time for me to apply to med schools, I didn't get in. No, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I was outright rejected by some schools, and I was put on a bunch of wait lists by others. And all of these didn't pan out to anything. Looking back, my grades were excellent, and I had pretty good scores for my medical school exams. And although I'll never really know, I think it was that I wasn't able to separate myself from the sea of other applicants. And that's ironic because for all of the time that I spent in my youth trying to be like everyone else, it's really the differences that make us unique. And in the end, it was one of those hard life lessons about putting all my eggs in one basket. Yeah, I know, another cliche. But thankfully, I was able to do some research with Dr. Ann Smith in her biochemistry lab. So I worked in her lab during the week, and on weekends, I was an operating room assistant in a local hospital. I learned many critical thinking skills and developed a broader appreciation for medicine. And two years later, I reapplied to med school and was accepted to Wayne State University. My path to med school was a little meandering, but I strongly decided on forensic pathology after receiving a lecture about it in class. After exploring it more, I felt that the combination of medicine, the judicial system, performing techniques and procedures, and the mental aspects of the field really fit my interests perfectly. Now, it just happens that it was Dr. Lavity, the very same person sitting next to me right now, who gave that talk. And she and I have discussed it a time or two, and although she will deny it, I credit her for igniting my personal interest in forensics. I've been very fortunate. My fellowship training was here, and it was excellent. The high volume and wide variety of cases was exactly what I wanted and what I needed. With my wife encouraging me and supporting me every step of the way, and all of the teaching that I've received from the doctors, autopsy technicians, photographers, investigators, and clerical staff here, I've been able to grow and help others grow in forensic pathology. Now that you know a little bit about us, you might be asking, why are we doing this? And aren't you busy enough? Well, sure, everybody's busy, but we are passionate 
and we are dedicated to what we do. We believe in education, and by education, we want to educate not just those medical students and residents who rotate through our office, but the general public. We spend a significant portion of each day talking about cases and sharing findings with each other. It's how the newer doctors in the office gain experience, and how us old dogs learn new tricks. Plus, we like each other. We want to bring forensic pathology in our work to everybody else. It'll help educate all the quote-unquote armchair detectives out there about the medicine and science of forensics. So with these podcast episodes, our goal is to cover a forensic pathology topic. And the challenge, of course, is finding the right balance of technical details to include. To make the topics more relatable, the episodes will incorporate some famous cases such as celebrities or high-profile deaths. The case we choose will be ones where the autopsy reports have been made public and are easily downloaded from an internet search. Unless the photos of the cases have been made public as well, our discussion will be limited to the autopsy reports. Of course, during future episodes, we may go back and revisit a case and discuss different aspects of it to illustrate multiple different forensic points. We'll also invite other medical examiner employees, consultants, and experts as the topics dictate. We rely on our experience to render opinions. However, one thing we are specifically not going to do is discuss any case within our own jurisdiction here in Southeast Michigan or ones which we have been consulted on regardless if the autopsy report has been made public. We're doing this to maintain the privacy of all of the families that have come through our office. We have eight episodes planned or in the works for this first season and we hope to see you back for episode two. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on Detroit's Daily Docket. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. If you want, rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Detroit's Daily Docket. Our theme song is Living by Read the Sun, and our podcast cover art is by Hollow Wicked Prince. Thank you for listening.